Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, Chinese President Xi Jinping has met with the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda, Gaston Brown. How will the two countries strengthen their cooperation? China's central bank has announced a series of monetary policy adjustments to boost growth. What impact will they have on China's economy? And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a four-nation tour in Africa. We take a closer look at the United States-Africa policy. Chinese President Xi Jinping has met with visiting Antigua and Barbuda Prime Minister Gaston Brown in Beijing. President Xi said China is ready to deepen cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative in areas like trade, infrastructure, climate change, new energy, and healthcare. Prime Minister Brown vowed to support the One China principle, saying Taiwan is a province of China. He also thanked China for helping lift his country out of poverty. For more, we are now joined by Professor Jiang Shixue with the College of International Relations at Sichuan International Studies University. Can you provide some historical context on the diplomatic ties between Antigua and Barbuda and China, and how would you characterize the current state of relationship between the two countries? Well,、uh, Antigua and Barbuda established、uh, a diplomatic relationship with China as early as.、Uh, In the uh, uh, early 1980s, uh, uh, 1983. So、uh, it's a long, long time ago. So over the past several decades, I think the bilateral relationship has been going on、uh, very smoothly, as well as uh, uh, quite steadily.、Uh, politically, well, there are um, uh, mutual uh, visits by high-level,、uh, high-level leaders and、uh, economic.、Uh, Cooperation has been also going on,、uh, trade and investment,、uh, as also at the same time,、uh, people-to-people exchanges is also going on smoothly.、Uh, Antigua and Barbuda has been、uh, designated as the tourist destination, tourist destination for Chinese people. So on the beach, you can see that、um, there are more and more Chinese tourists going there. So I would say this is a kind of a example of cooperation between a big country and a small country. You know, its population is only about one hundred thousand people. It's, it's, it's very small,、uh, but compared with China. One one point four billion, but it's well even even it's big even it's small.、Uh, there are corporations which have been quite successful. Okay, and、uh, the Antigua and Barbuda、uh, Prime Minister Brown said his country was lifted out of poverty thanks to the help from China. So, can you elaborate on the specific assistance from China that contributed to poverty alleviation in the country? Uh. To tell you the truth, Antigua and Barbuda has been a, a, a richer country compared with China. Its、uh, per capita GDP uh, is uh, uh, about uh, almost seventeen seventeen thousand U.S. dollars, and China is only about thirteen、uh, thousand、uh, uh, U.S. dollars. So.、Uh, Its、uh, per capita GDP is higher than China, but I would say that、uh, China、uh, has been、uh, contributing to economic、uh, growth in this tiny、uh, Caribbean country by uh, uh, promoting trade in, and and also uh, uh, investment.、Um, well,、uh, China has helped、uh, this country. Uh, Antigua and Barbuda to build an、uh, airport building,、uh, to repair a cricket sports stadium, help it to to repair some of the housing damaged by the hurricane, and also build a port.、Uh, China has also uh, sent uh, uh, a hospital ship. Uh, to help uh, 
the patients over there. So you can see that uh, what has China done can be a very positive to economic and uh, social development in Antigua and Barbuda. Yeah, and President Xi mentioned that Antigua and Barbuda is the first Eastern Caribbean country to sign a Belt and Road Cooperation MOU with China. How has the cooperation under the BRI benefited the two peoples? You know, uh, BRI is composed of uh, five links, uh, policy coordination, uh, infrastructure connection, trade facilitation, financial cooperation, and uh, people-to-people communication. So over the past uh, six years or so, the two countries has been uh, the the, uh, the two countries have been uh, engaged with each other in these uh, five areas, and uh, this time uh, uh, the state leader of uh, Antigua and uh, and the Barbuda's visit to China is also part of the policy coordination and as well as people to people communications. Uh, I, I believe that uh, in the near future China will uh, trade more with uh, this uh, Caribbean country and China is prepared to uh, to make more investment uh, over there. So the future will be very promising in terms of bilateral cooperation in all areas. Okay, and in what specific areas do you see the potential for increased cooperation between China and Antigua and Barbuda under the Belt and Road Framework? I would uh, point out the, the following areas. First of all, let's say that uh, China can help uh, Antigua and Barbuda to uh, improve its uh, uh, infrastructures uh, because uh, uh, this tiny uh, Caribbean country lacks uh, all, all its infrastructure is not well developed. And secondly, I think uh, China can trade more because uh, Antigua and Barbados' uh, economy uh, depends heavily on tourism. Its agriculture and the manufacturing are, are very poor. So its economy is not diversified. So it needs to import all kinds of things from foreign country. So China can produce uh, good quality and the low price, the manufactured goods. So Antigua and Barbuda can import more from China. And then uh, I believe that uh, uh, we can also uh, cooperate in the new energy sector. You know, Antigua, Barbuda and the other Caribbean countries uh, are quite rich in ocean energy, uh, because nowadays uh, with the development of science and non, uh, uh, as well as uh, technology, we can produce energy from waves of the ocean. And uh, China is well known for its uh, superior technology in this regard. So I hope that China can help Antigua and Barbuda to build a uh, energy plants uh, benefiting from its uh, coastlines and the ocean waves. And finally, I want to point out that China can send more tourists to Antigua and Barbuda. Well, I, I've been to the Caribbean uh, twice, and uh, I love the beach over there. Uh, the tourism in the Caribbean is well known beautiful sceneries and nice sunshine, nice beach. So I believe that the Chinese tourists definitely love this kind of beaches. Uh, so I hope that uh, uh, the two sides can uh, think about uh, better ways like, uh, like a visa simplification and the transportation for air travel and all kinds of things. And Antigua and Barbuda should uh, do some kind of promotion in China so that uh, Chinese tourists can know more about uh, the beautiful sceneries and the nice beaches over there.
Yes,、uh, but as we know, Antigua and Barbuda is one of the small island nations that are on the front line of climate change. So, how do you think China can play a role in helping enhancing the climate resilience of the region? Uh, yes, over the past、uh, several years,、uh, all the people from the Caribbean uh, said that、uh, they are quite quite concerned about the future of their homeland because climate change will raise the sea level. Okay, so if the sea level continues to rise, then Uh, the homeland in the Caribbean or in the Pacific Ocean will suffer greatly.、Uh, yes, we need to think about better ways to、uh, to push forward cooperation.、Uh, one thing I think、uh, we can do is to、uh, to take、uh, good advantage of the、uh, ocean energy resources, as I mentioned just now. And secondly. Uh, the Caribbean countries, including Antigua, the Barbuda, and China, and,、uh, and many other countries, should、uh, speak loudly on the global stage, so that、uh, the, all the countries can help the Caribbean countries to deal with this kind of climate change. But it's、uh, it's well, I would say it's maybe probably easier said than done. But anyway, we can cooperate. Uh, deal uh, to deal with climate change, we need、uh, two kinds of things. One is technology, and the other is financing. And I think China can offer certain kind of helping hand for Antigua and Barbuda or other Caribbean countries to deal with this kind of、uh, climate change by offering by offering、uh, credit, financial help, and as well as technology. Well, you know, some Western critics describe China's engagement with、uh, these Caribbean nations as,、uh, quote unquote, China's growing clout on U.S. doorstep. How do you look at this? Well, it is true that、uh, the Caribbean is、uh, the so-called、uh, backseat、uh, of the U.S. Or,、uh, but、uh, that's the uh, geographical uh, location. Okay, so China wants to have relationship with any country in the world. Okay, so why China cannot? Why shouldn't China have relationship with the Caribbean? Simply because the Caribbean is near the United States? This is nonsense. So China wants to、uh, to have better relationship with the Caribbean. As a matter of fact, China's cooperation with the Caribbean. Is good for the U.S. If the economy of the Caribbean can develop, then there will be less illegal migration to the U.S. Then there will be less smuggling of illegal drugs to the U.S. So the U.S. should be grateful to China because of China's help, because of the economic cooperation between China and the Caribbean. That's Professor Jiang Shixue with the College of International Relations at Sichuan International Studies University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The People's Bank of China has announced a series of monetary policy adjustments aimed at enhancing liquidity and promoting economic growth. The PBOC will lower the reserve requirement ratio by 0.5 percentage points, effective from February the 5th. This will inject 1 trillion yuan or 139 trillion U.S. dollars into the market. In addition, the PBOC will cut the relending and rediscount rates by a quarter of a point, reducing it to 1.75 percent, starting from January the 25th. This reduction is expected to decrease the overall cost of social financing and further facilitate economic recovery. For more, we are now joined by Liu Zhiqin, senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Doctor Liu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, as we know, the PBOC has decided to lower the、uh, triple R by 0.5 percentage points. Injecting one trillion yuan into the market, how significant is this move in terms of boosting liquidity, and what impact can we expect on the overall economy? 
I should say that at this time that to cut the triple R rate is a very important signal to the market. First, that shows that the determination of the authority, especially from PBOC, has really decided it's make more efforts to stabilize, stabilize the economy and also stimulate the, the growth of economic development, especially for the real industry. So actually, we see some uh, very special point first at the time, because this is in January. So this is the earliest date that for PBOC to have such a triple A cut uh, in recent years. So at the very beginning, that we have to already begun the uh, series of measures to support the economic development. And secondly, the, the space the space uh, is zero point five percent is far more. Uh, more than or bigger than last year, because last year every time that the AAA cut only zero point twenty five percent, only very smaller, just half of this uh, uh, today's uh, cut uh, uh, measures. So in this way, that shows a really very good and a positive uh, signal to the world to the world market, also to the domestic market, to stabilize our economy. Well, to which specific sectors does the PBOC expect the additional liquidity from the triple R cut to flow? And are there potential risks of uh, misallocation or asset bubbles? Actually, every time that when we see the problem from the cut of the triple A, uh, uh, they have some um, uh, positive impact on the economic development. But also we see some mislocation or some misuse of this uh, release the budget in the market. For instance, some uh, companies or some uh, entities could use this uh, release the budget in other, not in real uh, economy, but in, for instance, for the stock market or for buy shares or in other different uh, sections, not only to to stimulate the real industry uh, output. So this is a, uh, a risk that we have to be uh, paid attention. But from PBOC itself, that it's really want to show that uh, the central bank and the central government has really done its best to stabilize the economy and also shows the determination to stimulate the real economy. This is the only purpose of this action. Okay, and how does the PBOC plan to manage potential inflationary pressure resulting from the increased liquidity, and what factors are considered in balancing between fostering economic growth and maintaining price stability? In my opinion, I think the main purpose is not only to, uh, in order to resist or to prepare or to prevent the potential the inflationary uh, pressure on China's economy. Actually, in the last year, especially 2023, we are not facing the pressure from inflation, but we are facing a little bit from deflation mm-hmm. from the, the other other side. So we see that this action is really to push that the more business activities and stimulate all this economy as a whole, that to avoid the possible the, the, depreciation and also deflation because I think the consumers, the enthusiasm has been really uh, pressed last year. So we see that the consumption is not adequate enough and the investment is also not so active as we expected. So that's why we have such an action that in order to make a more boost the, to stimulate our economy, especially for more investment, more consumers and more, more uh, efforts to uh, have more uh, new industry sections, for instance, AI and other sections in order to get a better growth rate this year. Okay. And the PBOC will also cut the relending and rediscount rates by a quarter of a point. How confident is uh, the PBOC that uh, this will effectively translate into lower lending rates for businesses and consumers? You know, in the past time, that many companies, the whole society is always complaining with the high financial cost when the people try to have a lending or to have a real lending or refinancing for the 
banking institutions. So that's why I think this is really closely linked together with the AAA, triple R reduction, and also will be also influenced to, to have more uh, reduction in the lending risk. That, that is ARP. So uh, LPR, this rate is very important for the lending market. So in order to cut the cost of the customer, of the entrepreneurs, so in order to get a more booster for the uh, expand their production, expand their business, this is a very important connection and the further uh, consequences that are caused by this positive policy. Well, which industries or sectors are primarily expected to benefit from this uh, reduced borrowing costs? In, uh, actually, uh, all fields, because the demand among the release is quite a one trillion yuan, so that can cover a lot of needs uh, and uh, covering all the major industries at the moment. At the, at the moment, we see that uh, last year the central government has already announced that the uh, the nine major uh, tasks that are to be focused for our economic development. The first line, the third, second, and third are mainly focused on the science and the te- mm. technological innovation. So AI and also smart technology are the main field that are to be financed by such uh, action. So in this way, they, we, they can, we can promote and expand all these businesses related to other areas, for instance, Logistic also is a very important part of this uh, uh, allocation budget. So in this way, uh, in most of the areas will benefit from such action, including the agriculture, food in the food security, and also environment protection. For instance, the green development will be also uh, beneficial from this uh, further uh, reduction of the relenting and also. Triple R uh, cut is quite important for them. And uh, the deputy governor Zhu Hexin predicts an improvement in China's cross-border capital flows in 2024, with a reasonable surplus in the current account. Uh, what factors do you think have contributed to this prediction, and how might it influence China's economic landscape? I think, uh, in principle, that that this. Uh, uh, Forecast or some for good forecast about China's future economy, including financial section, that is always based on two factors. The first is the the overall policy that consistent, and secondly is also China's government always find the risks and the problems we are facing, that the challenge what we are to deal. So always in advance. So this is a really very important to give more confidence and also support those uh, companies or to have more and positive forecast and resumption about China's future, especially the China's government always has in good position that to prepare all these hidden risks, all the challenges we are facing already. So in, in this way that we can have a better policy prepared for companies and for the whole economy to deal with all the uncertainties and also to deal with those challenges that we are facing. Because this is why China, the economy is always so stable, it's always sustainable. This is one of the greatest contribution of the government and also the, the top Planners that they have done wonderful jobs. Yes, thank you, Liu Zhiqin, senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Coming up, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a four-nation tour in Africa. We take a closer look at the United States-Africa policy. And in Argentina, thousands are striking against President Javier Milei. We bring you more on what happened. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a four-nation tour in Africa. The trip takes him to Cape Verde, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, and Angola. 
It comes after a recent trip to Africa by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, a tradition that started 34 years ago of making Africa the destination of the Chinese Foreign Minister's first overseas trip of the year. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. He, thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. So, what do you think Antony Blinken is hoping to achieve through this trip to Africa? I think, uh, basically speaking, I uh, I think he wants to uh, achieve uh, this like uh, past uh, rebuilding uh, between U.S. and Africa because we all know, uh, like uh, at the end of uh, 2022, uh, in the U.S. Uh, Biden administration hosted uh, the Africa-U.S. summit. And by that time, uh, even President Biden himself promised saying he will go to visit Africa uh, in the year 2023. Uh, but uh, those promises uh, obviously has not uh, been delivered. Uh, Biden, uh, you know, hasn't visited Africa at all uh, in the past 2023. So all those, I think, make uh, Africa... Uh, plus, there's no some uh, actual those like uh, investment or like uh, all those development assistance to Africa also getting less, uh, not at all to meet all those promises before. So this this time around, uh, Secretary, uh, you know, the State Secretary Blinken uh, quickly visited Africa. I think is fully trying to rebuild the trust uh, between Africa and the uh, United States. Well, why do you think Biden, um, I mean, failed to visit Africa last year? And, and, and what has made Blinken to visit Africa now? And, and what does that tell us about uh, the United States-Africa policy? Yeah, they want to uh, show to Africa and even to the world that the United States still regarded Africa as a very important partner uh, to the U.S. And also they want to show uh, Africa uh, you know, this continent hasn't been forgotten uh, by the White House. Uh, so even though uh, President Biden himself uh, couldn't come to visit uh, this continent, uh, but uh, they will explain how definitely uh, Blinken will explain why uh, Biden couldn't make uh, his promise uh, before this and that, uh, like uh, Palestine-Israel, those conflicts, so on and so forth, uh, trying to get those understanding from Africa. So just want to reassure that Africa remains very important uh, for United States' this foreign policy agenda. Well, as we know, the trip comes right after Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit to four African nations. So would you see this as a coincidence, or do you feel perhaps uh, the U.S. is viewing Africa through the lens of uh, its competition with China? Uh, you know, very interesting thing is the White House spokesperson even, uh, you know, saying, ah, there's nothing to do with China's influence in Africa, uh, given the Blinken's visit to Africa. So it's nothing to do, saying, even though there is no China in Africa, U.S. remain, uh, well, put a great uh, importance uh, for Africa. But this is uh, uh, just a tone language. But in reality, uh, we have seen you know, all the constantly those uh, saying, even by those high-level officials, uh, no matter those previous, uh, you know, even Obama's time, all the way until now, including America's media themselves, uh, also come out with this saying, saying uh, the U.S. always uh, trying, you know, uh, uh, to compete uh, China and even Russia's influence in Africa. So they view Africa always through uh, the lens of this uh, great power competition. Uh, in Africa. Of course, certainly now it's China uh, economically and the Russia uh, military. Yeah, and, and Blinken announced in Cote d'Ivoire a pledge of 45 million US dollars in funding for security in West Africa. Uh, how do you look at this move? Oh, yes, because this is a feature. Uh, Blinken saying that he will put like security issue, economic issue in his agenda. Uh, so obviously they have to make some promise. Uh, for like fighting terrorism uh, in the West Africa, we all know uh, the sub, uh, you know, Sahler, uh, this uh, region uh, in the Western Africa, and uh, now it's becoming uh, the frontier for international uh, this anti-terror, uh, this uh, you know, the fighting, uh, this uh, you know, terrorists becoming quite active 
uh, in that part of the world. But unfortunately, uh, the French uh, used to be send their troops uh, in this area to fight terror. But uh, in the recent uh, one or two years, also uh, you see the they haven't French troops haven't done a good relation. Uh, this with uh, local countries and even come up come up with a lot of a military coup one by one, one by one, uh, like a domino strip, uh, you know, falling down. So you see, your uh, French troops now uh, will completely withdraw from this area. So this make a security vacuum, you know, for, uh, you know, easier for terrorists moving in, and also uh, will influence Americans' interest in that part of the world. So that is why now the Blinken gives this kind of uh, promise come out with this pledge of money saying now the United States remain, uh, stand, you know, together with the, uh, African countries for fighting terror uh, in, in this region. Well, as we know, um, the United States has put much emphasis on good governance or democracy building and private sector investment in its engagement with African nations, while China tend to focus on things like uh, industrialization, infrastructure building, uh, things like that. And also China uh, often presents itself as offering no preconditions. So how would you compare these two uh, different kind of approaches? Oh, yes, this is a certainly uh, this a very obvious differences coming from uh, China's approach and the United States approach. Actually, uh, y- y- you can see clearly that the American's approach uh, is all those like uh, talking, uh, you know, like a, a draw a big pie for you. And actually, you cannot get this pie into your mouth. Uh, not help for the you know, this, this, uh, food issue or living issue, shelter issue. Uh, but the China's this approach uh, exactly focuses on the real things. Uh, this can tangible, you can touch, you can you know benefit from your daily life. Uh, those industrialization and the infrastructure building, so place the good road condition for people daily use, uh, like those trains, uh, roads, and the harbor, uh, airport, whatever. And also industrial parks create a lot of jobs. So like if you every day just talk about democracy, uh, freedom, uh, good governance, but those things are just uh, something, good words flowing in the air, uh, has no direct uh, this uh, link with people's daily life. Uh, plus, all those uh, Western, including U.S. and European countries, they, uh, like the development system to Africa and even to other developing countries, always recall strange tax, uh, those uh, aid, uh, come up with a lot of preconditions. So it's not easy to meet all the preconditions for the poor countries. Uh, but China's approach uh, is no strings attached. Uh, we understand other countries, uh, they are, you know, uh, need help at the moment. Uh, they cannot meet all those, like, uh, this condition, that condition. Plus, uh, China always insisted on not interference with other countries' domestic issues. Uh, we respect uh, all those countries, no matter poor or small. Uh, you have your right to choose your own development model to fit with your own national conditions. That is why yeah, our approach, I think, is really uh, got this uh, welcome from African countries. Okay, thank you, Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Tens of thousands of Argentines have staged a nationwide strike in the biggest show of opposition to President Javier Milei's harsh austerity measures and reforms. Milei has vowed to address the challenges of a struggling economy with deep spending cuts and wider-ranging deregulation as the country sees over 200% inflation and substantial debt. The biggest union, the CGT, organized the strike, drawing workers from transport to banks and participation from social organizations and political opponents. For more, my colleague Ge Anna spoke with Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Dr. Anderson, can you elaborate on the key economic reforms implemented by President Miele, including the emergency decree and the omnibus law? How have these measures contributed to the current state of the Argentine economy? 
Well, the um, the two major initiatives uh, seem to be the omnibus law. It's a, it's a large combination of 664 articles. And then the decree, as you mentioned, which is a presidential decree, which um, can be struck down by the legislature, but until it is, it's, it's in place. So it's a package of reforms which have been uh, described as a Thatcherite sort of reforms, extreme um, right-wing, which means in this context to give a lot of power to the corporate sector, to undermine a lot of social protections and introduce typical neoliberal uh, approaches, which um, are intended to stimulate private sector investment and, and growth and so on. They're, they've been called shock treatment or shock therapy in the past, and the Argentinians are quite familiar with them because they've been through several rounds of this in the past when IMF um, organised loans were carried out under under those those sorts of conditions. They involve a lot of things like cutting public spending, privatising public enterprises, cutting labour law protections. Um, some of the additional social elements he's added is to to ban all or public protests. Um, and some of the results have been that there's been a, a steep rise in inflation, which is counter to what some of the objectives of the measures were. There's been uh, generated a lot of conflict, of course. There's a, a national general strike being called by the unions. Mm -hmm. There have been different forms of protest um, organised to try and get round or anticipate this ban on protests. Um, rent controls have been abandoned. Um, that means prices have gone up um, in, in housing and in other areas too. So there's a huge social disruption going on at the moment. And that includes, of course, disruption to the economy. There's no immediate short-term gains, except that the I think the investor markets have responded positively in some ways, and he's had some encouragement from um, some overseas political figures to have some similar ideas. As you mentioned, a nationwide strike and protests were staged against Millet's economic policies. How would you assess the public response to these reforms, and what role has social unrest played in shaping the political landscape under the new administration? Well, unfortunately, this sort of uh, response um, to initiatives, to these extreme sort of initiatives, is something that's been in Argentina's history since the 1980s. They've been in and out of it for, for many years. There's been some governments which have taken a different approach in recent, in recent decades, but really there has been this IMF-conditioned ideas of how a, a country gets out of its public debt, basically, by essentially trashing a lot of the social protections which have been built up over years, you know, so... The, the Argentine people are familiar with this, and so they're really set on a course of confrontation with the government. Let's remember a number of these uh, planned changes, which include changes to political electoral systems, to um, have to get through the legislature there. And the, the party of the president, uh, although the president was elected, the party of the president only has 15% of the lower house seats and 10% in the Senate. So it's going to be very difficult for him to... Um, get legislative, legislative approval for some of these measures that he's trying to put forward. And they do, a lot of them do require um, approval of the legislature. One of the major debates in Argentina is the draft legislation proposed by Mele, uh, which includes controversial changes related to workers' rights and the right to protest. Can you delve into the specific reforms impacting labor and social rights in the country? And how are these changes perceived by different segments of the population? Well, they're, they're classical neoliberal approaches, basically, to talk about the labour field as a market in which prices are set by so-called free market processes, which means effectively giving a large amount of power to the corporations to, for example, to sack unionised workforces and to rehire people on, on private contracts to try and get round whatever legislative, legislative protection is there for, for workers, basically, in terms of the conditions of their work and, and the, the, the setting of their salaries and so on. So it's really trying to hand over a lot of that so-called labour market to the, the private corporations, give them what they want. Tax changes associated with this too, really, he's gone in for across-the-board measures, as I said, which are very familiar, very very stereotypical of what has been called the Washington Consensus, that is to say the, the package that were put together systematically with laboratories effectively in Latin America beginning in the 70s. 
and um, then with the very systematic conditions on loans in the 80s, which led uh, as a result of the, the debt crisis in the early 80s there. So really getting rid of a lot of social protections have been built up. So there's enormous resentment and reaction to this because people have struggled for some of these gains in the past, in labour protections and also um, some caps on, on rent prices, for example. Mm-hmm. We've seen the inflation rate in Argentina has surged significantly, reaching a three-decade high of over 200%. Given the current economic challenges and the opposition to Milley's policies, can his radical economic policies help Argentina out of its troubles, based on your observation? Well, it's an important point because it's not something that was planned, of course, um, the, as you say, the over 200% annualised rate of inflation has doubled on, on a monthly basis since he came to power late last year. And so that's really um, a fly in the ointment of what he hopes to achieve because, of course, um, investment um, doesn't proceed very smoothly when you have those sorts of levels of investment. It's the, I believe it's the highest rate in Latin America at the moment. So that's really going to be very difficult. I mean, the, part of the thrust of, of these sort of approaches is to say if you give open the field to private investors in terms of tax, in terms of uh, getting rid of the regulation on investment and so on, um, uh, getting rid of labour protections, is that they will invest more and they will stimulate some sort of generalised growth and people will benefit from that generalised growth. That is undermined by this terrible inflation which has kicked in because of, apparently because of expectations about prices, rising prices, which are, of course, another one of the stimuli for the protest there. People are Ordinary people are hit very much by the rising prices of all basic commodities and so on. And so it's also going to affect the, um, the capacity of, of investment to deliver the benefits that he suggests is going to come from his um, what used to be called open market policies. Dr. Anderson, since President Millet took office, he has garnered a lot of attention on the global stage, receiving support from figures like Elon Musk or uh, former U.S. President Donald Trump, who claimed Millet was making progress in making Argentina great again. Uh, How has this international reception influenced Millet's approach to domestic reforms, in your opinion? Well, it probably has and will encourage him, I guess, to maintain that position. I mean, one of his ministers just said recently that the the general strike called against the measures is a sign that it's working. In other words, they knew that the Millay's ministers, Millay's group knew that they were going to get a very strong reaction. There was going to be a a huge struggle going on to try and smash the the labour protections in particular and, and some of the controls on prices. And they anticipated that sort of conflict. But I think the support from Trump and uh, I think uh, some others in, in the UK, perhaps even Elon Musk, are mm-hmm. going to encourage Milo that this is worth, this conflict is worth it, it's worth persisting. So unfortunately, I think it's really shows us that this is conflict is going to go on for some time in Argentina. That's Dr. Tim Mannerson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank, speaking with Guana. This is World Today. We'll be back. In the U.S., large multinational companies are urging the Biden administration to keep politics away from any national security review of a proposed acquisition of U.S. steel by Nippon Steel. The Japanese company reached the 14.9 billion U.S. dollar deal with the Pennsylvania-based steelmaker in December. However, it is facing a bipartisan backlash in Washington, with the White House and prominent lawmakers calling for investigation on national security grounds. The Global Business Alliance has written a letter to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen asking her to focus only on facts in conducting any possible review. The alliance is a trade group representing major foreign multinationals investing in the U.S. Yellen chairs the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., a government agency that can block foreign takeover deals on national security grounds. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hung. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Daoying. So Nippon Steel is the world's fourth largest steel maker. So if the deal could proceed, the combined company would become among the top three steel producing companies in terms of size. So what do you make of this deal from a purely commercial perspective? 
So basically the two sides have their respective motivations here. Uh, for the Japanese company, it has had a presence in the United States for almost four decades, starting with a joint venture in 1984. It is looking to expand its U.S. production with an eye on this policy benefit or policy support from Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And for the U.S. company, it wants to increase its competitiveness in the U.S. and beyond. So from the U.S. and Japanese, you know, commercial perspective, it seems to be a sensible deal. But from a Chinese perspective, uh, there is a complicated feeling for me personally, because clearly this deal is a joint Japanese-American attempt to compete with China in the global steel market, because in terms of size, China is now the global market leader, followed by India at the second place and Japan at the third. The U.S. steel capacity is now ranking at the fourth place globally. We know there were some complaints or, or acquisitions, for example, from the U.S. about the dominance of China-made steel. Whether or not they are legitimate, that's another matter. But clearly, somebody, some people are very unhappy about China being the leader here. Okay, then what do you think has fueled this bipartisan backlash against this proposed takeover? Uh, you know, President Biden has touted Japan as the closest Asian ally of the U.S., but even Biden himself supports conducting a national security probe into this deal. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, that's um, pretty interesting. Now, first of all, we are talking about this powerful United Steelworkers Union, which is known in short in America as USW. It is the main trade union or labor union at the U.S. Steel. According to the USW, neither Nippon Steel nor the U.S. Steel had consulted this particular deal with the trade union in advance, so it is very unhappy. And then on the part of those steel workers in America, I guess this concern is probably real regarding how this acquisition might have an, an impact on their uh, future career, etc., etc. Uh, one thing to note here is that um, actually in the United States, there is not a lack of negative perception about Japanese businesses. This perception originated from the rise of Japan's economic power relative to the U.S. power uh, during the 1970s and 80s. Um, then with regard to Biden, um, the place where U.S. Steel is headquarters, um, you know, Pennsylvania, is really politically important for the U.S. president because, um, and in the meantime, we need to keep in mind that U.S. Steel also has a factory operating in the state of Michigan as well. Biden won both Pennsylvania and Michigan in the 2020 election. And these two states were really, you know, swing states. They are very key in his eventual victory at the time. Actually, this uh, trade union, USW, gave endorsement to Biden in 2020. So as Biden looks to the presidential race this year, including the current momentum enjoyed by former U.S. President Donald Trump on the Republican side, he has apparently prioritized his own you know, political future rather than this so-called alliance with, with, with Japan. Uh, well, the chief executive of the Global Business Alliance says uh, the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment should never become a tool for garnering political favor or allowing domestic competitors to achieve something they cannot do in a competitive market. What is your take on this? Yeah, I think um, this could have uh, far-ranging consequences if we are talking about a delayed or derail uh, CFIUS review, that would um, really represent a um, blow to the U.S. investment climate. Previously, we have long held a perception that the U.S. is open to foreign investment. Um, from China's perspective, that has, has been no longer the case since at least uh, 2018 or so. If we think about how the U.S. government has treated the U.S. operations of Chinese tech companies like Huawei, ZTE. 
But despite that, some people still have this illusion that, oh, that was only towards the businesses from China or some of the uh, U.S. enemies. Uh, but if we take a look at this latest case involving this Japanese steel company, I think it's really time for that illusion to disappear because we really need to think about what uh, Trump administration has done to European businesses. Uh, think about the protectionist nature of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And in the case of Japan, I think it is really time for Japan to think twice about its alliance with Washington because Japan has, on one hand, joined the U.S. In, in terms of, say, imposing restrictions on exports of, say, high-end semiconductors to China, for example. But on the other hand, you know, considering how U.S. politicians are nowadays reacting to a Japanese proposed takeover in the steel industry, I think Tokyo really should think twice about whether it is worthwhile to wholeheartedly follow uh, Washington's lead in every industry, especially on economic and business issues. Yeah, and very briefly, we know that U.S. steel was once a symbol of U.S. industrial power, but now it has agreed to become a subsidiary of a Japanese company. I mean, how do you look at all this? Well, obviously, the gradual decline of the U.S. industrial power um, arguably, the, this industrial decline in America is what has given rise to the rising, say, income gap or wealth gap, this uh, 1% versus 99%, as well as the political movement that somehow has found Donald Trump as its agent or representative. These are all related issues. And of course, nowadays, uh, politicians are talking about reindustrialization. Donald Trump has talked about this during his term. Biden is, is talking about this. But of course, there are many real challenges socially and politically in this regard. Well, thank you, Ding Hun. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>